Hi, everybody. Um, I'm a little bit hot and sweaty because I have indeed just rushed from uh, the ward. Anyway, um, I sat up late last night thinking about this talk and I realised to my surprise that what I really wanted to discuss with you is love in a pandemic. Um, and this is because I feel as though for all the grief and death and pain and suffering that we've all witnessed over the course of the last year in the NHS, actually, I've learned more about love than anything else. So uh, if you can bear with me, I'd like to start by reading a few lines of poetry. And these are actually written not by me, but by my daughter, who luckily is young enough to not understand how horrifying it is for your words of poetry to be read out after Ben Ockrey's. Uh, so Abby, last summer, um, when the first terrible wave of this pandemic had finally apparently abated, was, um, like the rest of the nation's kids, pretty unhappy, being homeschooled and desperately missing her friends. And her teacher asked the, her class to ask a po write a poem about what they were missing in lockdown. And the brief was really simple. It was rhyming couplets and anything you're missing. And, and this is what Abby wrote. We're racing around squealing like pigs feet stamping the ground and snapping twigs. Now we laugh and have a munch. We love our delicious school lunch. I'm tucked up cozy in my bed, dreaming of what I could do instead. And I stare at the sil silver moon above and think of all the things I love. At this point in the pandemic, I was pretty shell-shocked by what we'd all experienced during the first wave. And I had been next to useless at home. My husband had pretty much taken over total control of the house and the children with um, interesting consequences. And meanwhile, I wasn't experiencing lockdown at all. I was just going to work every day in the hospital, working harder than I'd ever worked in my life before. But Abby's poem really drew me up short. I, I, I couldn't believe she was missing her school meals. And I knew what that really meant was missing all of the camaraderie of school, her friends, her teachers, all of that social contact. And I, I realised that I just couldn't understand any of that. I wasn't locked down. And this world of homeschooling and boredom and all the supermarkets running out of toilet rolls and flour was just completely alien to me and felt like it was about a million miles away from what was happening inside the hospital. I think I, I wrote Breathtaking, my book, in part because I knew right from the outset, really, that, that my world, this extraordinary world of pandemic medicine, the likes of which none of us had ever known before in the NHS, had to be equally unimaginable for those outside. The hospital doors were closed. No one knew what it was like inside unless you worked there or you were a patient there. Um, and I started writing to begin with, basically as a, as a kind of nocturnal 
therapy. I couldn't sleep at night. I had horrific insomnia and I used to get up and just pace around the kitchen and sit at the kitchen table tapping away on my keyboard. And then gradually when the first wave started to abate, so by the time we got to sort of late May, early June last year, I was freed up a little bit to start to write more. And if you think back to that time, it was when really, I think the country started to get very fractious. We had all been locked down for a very long time by then. Dominic Cummings had just checked his eyesight by taking his family on a trip to Barnard Castle. We had people like the Weatherspoons boss, Tim Martin, um, just stridently demanding that everything was opened up at quick, as quickly as possible. And I felt as though no matter that my testimony might be subjective and flawed and clearly very personal, there had to be something valuable in trying to document the just the rawness of those unfolding months. Um, I was pretty punch drunk um, by that stage in the pandemic. It had been shattering for everyone in the health service, but I did know one thing. I had been there, I had seen it with my own eyes and I could tell this story and I wanted to tell this story because there was a second thing I knew for certain, as certain as I was of anything. And this is that during that first wave, despite all of the mistakes and all the things we got wrong, and, and certainly the NHS did get things wrong, actually NHS staff rose to the challenges of that first wave in March, April, May last year, absolutely magnificently. Literally every single day at work, I saw more courage and grit and sheer resilience in my colleagues than I had ever witnessed before in all the 12 years I'd been a doctor. And I wanted to tell that story because it was true and it was real and it mattered. It seemed to say something so important about us as a society. So if you rewind a year and think back to late February 2020, it's hard to exaggerate quite how rapidly the feeling of dread was building up at that time. So we'd had the pandemic in China, but Wuhan feels a very, very long way away from the UK. But by late February, suddenly, it was Northern Italy that was being overwhelmed by this virus. And Italy is on our doorstep. It doesn't feel far away at all. And all of a sudden we started seeing those images of hospitals overrun with patients. We had reports of hospitals in Lombardy running out of oxygen, running out of ventilators, having to ration, literally choose between patient A, patient B, which of them are we going to give the last ventilator to? And, um, at the same time in the UK, we had lockdown not happening. We had a prime minister who was boasting about going into hospitals filled with COVID patients and shaking hands with them. We had the Cheltenham races going ahead with a quarter of a million people gathering into the stands over the course of that week. And we had our numbers going up and up and up and up. And for everybody working in health and social care, 
we needed PPE that we didn't necessarily have, and we started to see our colleagues dying. I'll never forget the first, the announcement of the first death of an NHS doctor. It was, it was absolutely um, shocking. I asked if I could move across from the hospice where I normally work as a palliative care doctor into the hospital because I knew that the wards were going to be filled with people suffering with COVID, dying from COVID, and I wanted to be where I could be most useful and everybody felt pretty much the same. Um, and all of a sudden, I therefore was exposed to this hospital environment where absolutely everybody, all your colleagues, were barricaded behind layers and layers of PPE, the masks, the gowns, you've, you've all seen the images. And you knew that when you set foot inside the hospital, you were potentially risking your life, the life of your husband, your kids, you might bring the virus back home with you. But we all step through the doors because, of course, this is what you're going to do. You're trained to care for patients. And it was pretty sobering to come home from work every day, having changed out of my scrubs, put on new clothes, to walk through the door and have a ritual where I would say to the children, don't come near me. Mum hasn't got clean. Keep away. And then I would disinfect my phone, the car keys, the door handle. I'd run upstairs, strip off my clothes, get into the shower, wash my hair, get every single scrap of virus off me so that I wasn't endangering my family, the people I loved more than anyone. That was an extraordinary thing to start doing a year ago. We're used to it now. I'm still doing it, um, but it was a shock. I'm going to share um, several br brief vignettes from that first wave, which I think collectively conveys something of what it's really been like inside our hospitals over the course of the last year. So, so first of all, from a patient's perspective, it was early on that I realized something profound and um, devastating really about this pandemic from a patient's perspective. And it's this, it's that for all the patients coming into the hospital with COVID or in fact any other illness, if those patients did not survive to leave hospital, then from that moment onwards, the first moment that they arrived inside the hospital, they were destined literally never to see another human face again. Every single person around their bedside was wearing a mask. So no smiles, no lips, no cheeks, no human faces, just pairs of eyes. And I found that haunting really that image the idea that when you are frightened and vulnerable and aware that you may be dying you do not get the comfort of human faces it, it was shocking to think about that and from a relative's perspective um, that there was something else that was equally haunting namely the fact that for so many people they were not allowed inside the hospital to see their loved ones. There's been a furore at the moment about the fact that Prince Charles went to visit his father in hospital. Were the rules applied um, differently in his case because he was royal? There's been a lot of outrage about, about that at the moment. The, the answer actually is that 
all the way through the pandemic in, in some hospitals, even right back in the first wave, people were allowed to visit when their loved ones were right at the end of life, when we thought they were dying, but only in those very small um, numbers of circumstances. And that is so heartbreakingly wrong. It goes against everything that we normally try to do in palliative care, which is humanize the bedside, bring in as much as possible the, the warmth and tenderness of, of a loving human presence. We, we just didn't have that by and large in the shape of family members. And we had to try and provide the human presence in their absence. There was uh, one day, again, a, a moment when I was really brought up short. Um, and it was as I walked through the hospital car park early one morning in that beautiful, beautiful, sunny spring of last year. And I realized there were cars parked in, in the hospital, outside the hospital. And in those cars, people were sitting and they had pointed their cars. So they were facing the entrance to the hospital and they were just sitting and sitting and sitting because they weren't allowed inside and their relatives were inside. And that sort of desperate hunger to be physically close, as close as possible to the person they loved, had taken them in their car, into the car park where they would sit sometimes for hours in a sort of silent vigil, just longing to be with their loved one. Um, the, the, the last little vignette I'm going to share with you um, is from the hospice setting rather than the hospital and the hospice where I work, which is called Catherine House Hospice, it's a little hospice in rural Oxfordshire, uh, cared for COVID patients as well as non-COVID patients in the first wave, we, we still do that. Um, and there was one occasion when we were caring for a patient who was very young, very frightened. She had cancer and also COVID. And I happened to be on call that weekend. We, we knew she was likely not to last until Monday morning. And there was a moment when no drugs really helped her symptoms because her symptoms weren't physical. We couldn't give morphine to help her pain. Her symptoms were almost existential and they were just profound and astonishing anguish at the thought of losing everything, everyone, every person she loved in the world because she knew she was dying and drugs can't fix that kind of anguish. The only thing that can fix it is another human being, someone being there with you helping you in that moment of fear and loneliness. But how do you do that when you are barricaded behind your PPE? You've got a plastic visor, a mask, an apron, a gown. Um, you just can't do it. And officially, we are not meant to make any physical contact with our patients unless it's necessary. Now, I work with a number, a great many extraordinary nurses and other doctors, all the other healthcare professionals, but I think the nurses in particular, some are hard as nails. They are absolutely ruthless in their determination to love their patients, care for their patients. And on this occasion, a particular nursing colleague of mine and friend of mine who would want to remain nameless 
decided that she would define that word necessary for herself and what was necessary in that moment, what her patient needed was her physical human presence at the bedside. And so she walked over knowing that she was putting herself at risk, knowing her patient had COVID, knowing that she could become infected. And remember, there were no vaccines then, no, not even on the horizon did we have a vaccine. And she took this young woman, frightened woman, in her arms and she embraced her, held her like a mother would hold a frightened child. And with her whole body, she gave her comfort despite the PPE, despite the restrictions and despite the risk to herself. And that for me is a visual image of something that absolutely defines what the NHS has done over the course of the last year, what NHS people have done. It was truly extraordinary. And I, while I can't pretend any of the last year has been easy, for any of us, I do believe that it has taught me a great deal to feel gratitude for and to feel hopeful about. Um, the pandemic has been relentless for everybody. Uh, I think in a way, we're all grieving collectively as a country at the moment for something. Everybody has lost something in this pandemic. And yet what I've had the privilege to see every day is NHS staff operating with the most incredible courage and determination and cold, hard, steely love that you could ever imagine. It is much easier not to go the extra mile, just keep your head down, hope it will all go away. It's much harder to immerse yourself in what your patients are experiencing in the midst of a pandemic, but that is what NHS staff have done. Not because we're heroes or angels or anything like that at all. We're all just ordinary, vulnerable, frail, fallible, knackered human beings, just like all the other knackered human beings all over the world in this dreadful pandemic. But what I have learned is something about love. I have seen how fierce and incredibly committed NHS staff are to that ideal of loving and caring for our patients. And it makes me believe that despite everything this year, fundamentally, we do care about our fellow citizens. And there is such a thing as society. And fundamentally, People in Britain, just like anywhere else, by and large, are good. And that is true and it matters and it cannot ever, ever be taken away by COVID. Thank you very much.